Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. And now we hear the lesson from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, the first 13 verses. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asked for an egg, would give a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Every Monday lunchtime, I have Rotary Club meeting downtown, Auburn Avenue, uh, in the middle of the city. This, this past Monday, I made arrangements ahead of time to meet with a friend after our usual meeting. We walked to a, uh, the Landmark Diner down there, which isn't far from uh, our meeting place on Auburn Avenue. Had a Coke, got caught up. My friend is a headhunter. He's got a fascinating job. He does executive searches and mostly uh, for CEOs for companies. So it's it's fascinating work. He spends all week with high-functioning, high-producing leaders. So, So I ask him while I'm sipping my Diet Coke, what are those CEOs not doing that I am doing? Now, I know my question might sound backwards. Others might want to know what they are doing. 
But I was really interested in knowing what they're not doing. But I read their biographies, and the biggest CEOs seem to have time to go to Aspen for two weeks. They go to long, late dinner parties with other interesting people. They never seem to miss their kids' little league games. They swim for an hour every morning, grow roses as a hobby. And yet, their impact, their productivity is astonishing. I seem to work more hours and at the end of the day have more unanswered emails than I started with. Lucky to get to the gym three mornings a week. I'm just too busy. So I wanted to know what those CEOs are not doing that I am doing. Which is common, right? I mean, we look at the lives of others, people we admire, and we want to know how do they pull that off? I spend most Sunday afternoons after I leave here, tie off, gym shorts, brain dead, watching golf. Every golf broadcast on Sunday afternoon has some golf specialist breaking down one of the swings of the PGA players. They'll do it in slow motion. See how most of Justin's weight has shifted to his back foot while the shaft of the golf club is now parallel to the ground. And just before release... Now, see, the commentator knows that there are lots of middle-aged fat people sitting on their sofa (laughs) wanting to know how do they do that? How do they hit it that far and that consistently straight? Because we keep looking at the lives we admire and we, how do they do it? Which is what's happening in our scripture today. The disciples have noticed Jesus is up to something they need to know a whole lot more about. He's the most fully alive person they've ever known. He lives with an urgency about things that are most important, yet he also lives in the moment, never seems rushed. He's intolerant with injustice, yet he's compassionate with people who have shortcomings. He gives himself away to the powerless and seems completely unintimidated by the powerful. He's got this clear, focused commitment toward his purpose, which, which he seems to know fully. And he still has time to stop without any sense of hurry and bless the people who are in his presence. So how does he do it? How does this man live with this much abundance and purpose? And they look at the life they admire and want to know how. And they've noticed that Jesus has a habit, a solitary practice that's not a part of their lives, at least not at this level. Jesus steals away to pray. And he does it often. I mean really often. Just in Luke's gospel, Jesus receives the Spirit while praying. He prays before the call of the disciples. He prays before his faithful decision to go to Jerusalem. He prays before the transfiguration. He prays before he goes to the Mount of Olives. Jesus dies praying. Jesus does some praying in Luke. It's everywhere. 
he would even stop healing people to go pray. Listen to this verse from Luke chapter 5. But now, more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. So what is he doing that we're not doing? When, when Jesus steals away by himself to pray, how does he, how does he do? How does, how does he pray? So on this occasion, Jesus has just returned from one of those uh, seasons away, a time away, praying alone, and one of the disciples asks him, "Lord, teach us to pray." And Jesus answers, which is in fact pretty uncharacteristic of Jesus, right? I mean, he answers directly. He doesn't tell a riddle. He doesn't respond to a question with a question. He doesn't speak to them in parables saying, he just answers. By the, by the way, this, um, this version in Luke you've already picked up is much shorter than the more familiar, more polished version that's found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, that's the one we repeat, we've repeated already in worship, and we repeat most often is the Matthew version. But this one in Luke, Jesus says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. I think I could preach an entire sermon series just on the first line of this model prayer, beginning with intimacy and awe, eminence and transcendence. Pray, Father, Abba, Daddy, may your name be revered, hallowed, sacred. I won't spend every, this much time on every line of this prayer but I do want to bear down on the first word, Father. First, God is not male. We know that. Jesus says God is like a hen who protects her brood. God transcends gender. But the focus here is on the intimacy of a perfect parent. An image that conveys absolute trust. The Greek word here is familiar. It's, the prayer by, begins by saying, if you think of God, think daddy. There are lots of biblical images that make God seem distant or angry. At times, the biblical depiction of God can be that a God who needs to be placated or pleased or a God who's keeping score. Some people's image of God is harshly judgmental. But Jesus says, think perfect daddy. Jesus said, call God Father, the one who carries you, the one who knows you, the one who loves you, protects you. This image became particularly important for me when I was doing a chaplain internship at Emory and Eggleston and Crawford Long Hospital. A year and a half after I finished seminary, I spent time as a chaplain intern in those hospital systems. I know some of you have seen my completed uh, uh, 
diploma from that signed by the hospital administrator, hospital president, Dan Barker in 1988. It's in my office. But in the hospital, I would sit with families facing health fears that just seemed utterly hopeless. The machines would blink and ding and the tubes would inhale and exhale and mama is 96 years old and 96 pounds and the family would say, Chaplain, would you pray with us for mama's healing? What do I say? Is it intellectually dishonest to pray, God, bring your healing grace to this 96-year-old woman who is full of cancer and has a bad heart and is being kept alive by this machine? And I struggled with that until I got up close to the first word of this prayer, Father, Because in the relationship with my dad, I was freely at liberty to ask for anything. Dad, can I have ice cream for supper? Can I have keys to the car? Can I have money for pizza? Can I have a new ball glove? Can I have a bigger allowance? Can I have a pony? I could ask anything. I knew I wasn't getting all I asked for. I knew that some of what I asked for was completely unreasonable. And that my dad was in no way bound to what I asked for. That he would make decisions from within his larger wisdom. But I was always free to ask. I could just trust the love and the wisdom and the relationship to ask any honest desire of my heart. But offer it up into his ultimate love for me. So I no longer worry about whether or not my prayers are reasonable. I just pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Daddy, you are the sacred, the holy, the divine one. I trust you fully with my brokenness. I will just act like a child and trust and lay it before you. Your kingdom come. It's the single biggest topic in the preaching of Jesus, the kingdom of God. God's big love project to reclaim the world. God's loving rule in the hearts of all people. The kingdom of God, he teaches us to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray and align and work for that vision to come true within us. And to be instruments of that vision becoming true in the world. Give us each day our daily bread. Not a home on Habersham or a Tesla. We pray that our provisions will be met. So that we'll have the strength and the shelter and the stuff of life needed to be strong enough to participate in relationship and to participate in this big kingdom project of God's love. Forgive us our sins. Then Jesus adds, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. 
Guilt and grudges are the thieves of joy. They weigh us down like carrying a backpack full of rocks. Morning and night we replay our betrayal, the ways we failed our family, the ways we betrayed our best self, ignored the call of God. And morning and night we chew like cud the things that were done to us. I will never forgive her for what she did. We rehash what we should have said and how we should have set him straight and how we will get even. And our guilt and our grudges weigh so heavy, we will never get a chance to dance. And Jesus offers us a model prayer that gives all of this over to the redemptive and forgiving God who takes and forgives our betrayal and then offers us back the strength to offer that grace to others. And lead us not into temptation. Give me the strength to not collect more rocks. I'm aware of my betrayal, the ways I have been selfish. As I catalog before your goodness all the betraying tantrums, the unholy websites, the lies, the stinginess, the self-indulgence that makes me ashamed. I pray God on this day that I might not go down that path again this day, tempted to betray again. That's the whole prayer. David Luce says the Lord's prayer is pretty simple. After asking that we act in a way to keep God's name holy and live the kingdom life on earth, Jesus' prayer covers sustenance in the form of daily bread, relationship in the form of forgiveness, and safety. Bring us through the time of trial. These are the basics of life. And Jesus limits himself to these essentials. In short, prayer doesn't need to be complex to be faithful, he says. I know some people who pray this prayer every day as an outline. You could do worse. Actually, it's a great idea. It can be a perfect outline for your daily personal prayers. Every day, Father, hallowed be your name. And you can spend a while just basking in the relationship and the intimacy, offering up your prayers of adoration, worship. And then your kingdom come. Offering prayers under that heading for the church and the nation and the world. Prayers for the homeless and the helpless. Prayers that your kingdom will come and then so forth and so forth. Each line becomes an outline, a starting point to structure our prayers for provision and forgiveness and the like. Listen. Not a bad idea at all. Or 
you could take the option that most people take and just live fast and not bothered by any of it. Right? I mean, that's what most people do. But it leads to such an unsatisfying life in shallow water. The disciples noticed that Jesus was living with a different sense of power and purpose and that something about what animated his life was tied to the way he went away and prayed. And they seemed genuinely ready to give up their life in the shallows to pursue something deep and holy and grounding and the source of that seemed to be the strength of the one they were following. I went to a funeral several years ago uh, for a a great Atlantan. It was at another church in town, and my friend Julie Pennington Russell preached that funeral that day. I admired this man greatly, and she did such a great job of eulogizing him, and she was contrasting his life his life, which was marked by prayer and kindness and purpose and relationship and meaning and focus and all of that, with the lives she saw most people living in Atlanta day by day. And she read this excerpt from a poem by Kenneth Fearing. It seemed to capture what we see too often being lived in Atlanta. And wow, he died as wow, he lived. Going wop to the office and Bluey home to sleep. And Biff got married and Bam had children and Oof got fired. Zowie did he live and Zowie did he die. As I said, you, you can just live fast and unbothered by it all. You, you can join the throngs of people who just live Zowie, Bam, Bluey. Or you might have gotten to the place where the disciples were. You might have been looking at this life of Jesus long enough to wonder, what are the habits and practices that create such a big and generous life? How do I order my inner life in a way to create space where my spirit can find purpose and love and meaning. And the disciples were curious enough to ask, how does this man live with this much abundance and love? And we look at the lives of people we admire and want to know how. So they simply asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And the choice when you leave is yours. You can spend each day this week going walk to the office and bluey home to sleep. Or you can start a new practice that opens each morning with, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and begin to experience what it is that animates a full and generous and loving life. How you respond is up to you. But this church is a place where we nurture this kind of relationship with the living Lord. 
And it might also be time for you to join this church and say, I want to give my gifts into this place, be partner with you in what you are doing here, and locate my life here as a place to learn how to pray and be the disciple God has called me to be. Whatever your next faithful first step is, may you have the grace to say yes to it as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponstelian Baptist Church.